0: It's not gonna come as a surprise to any of you that I spend more time than is psychologically healthy trying to argue with racists. And I'd like to say that I'm motivated by purely political belief that I want to build a better world. But if I'm honest, there's probably some deeply neurotic bit of my brain which thinks that if I could only get these people to recognize our shared humanity, I could finally be free of the pernicious tentacles of internalized racism that have tangled up my self-esteem. Needless to say, it hasn't yet succeeded. But what even are we talking about when we talk about race? How did certain clusters of physical features, skin color, hair color, and texture, become the basis of how we categorize the human species? Race science is making a screaming comeback. From the 14 words which rephrase an Adolf Hitler quote to scaremongering about white genocide in the face of changing demographics, the idea that race purity is under threat and must be violently defended is gaining momentum. So how are we to fight back against the return of race science? I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Adam Rutherford, geneticist, author, broadcaster, and all-round science popularizer. He's an academic at UCL, co-presenter of The Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry on BBC Radio 4, and the author of How to Argue with a Racist. His new book, Control, The Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics, is out next week. And we discussed Churchill and his enthusiasm for breeding a more superior race, Brazil's disappearing donkey, and the racism of Richard Dawkins. Okay, so have you ever done a 23andMe ancestry test thing? I
1: have. I have. In in fact, I've done several.
0: Um, Why? What was there left
1: to learn? (laughs) Well, for professional reasons more than anything. So I've spent- you like, I
0: really want to be Viking
1: descended? Yeah, well, I am because everyone is. (laughs) Um, I mean, it wasn't a surprise to the results because they came back with 51% from Southeast Asia um, and 50% or 49% from North (laughs) Asia. Uh, East England. And this wasn't a surprise because my my dad is from Newcastle and my my birth mother is from India via Guyana. So that wasn't a surprise. But there were interesting things within it. And it was mostly from a sort of professional point of view, I was trying to understand what the process was and why people are so attracted to these, why this is the single biggest way that people in the West engage with genetics today.
0: I mean, did you feel any kind of emotional pull when you were doing it? Or was it purely dispassionate and professional curiosity?
1: I'd be lying if I didn't if I didn't enjoy getting those results. And I still get updates from them. Because once you're in the system, they, they keep updating it as the ga- databases change. And when they send an email saying, you've got a new match, I click on it, look at it and go, yes, yeah, a fourth cousin. <laughs> There's 10,000 of them already. It's not that interesting. But then there are little details which are of... Just more than trivial interest for me. So, for example, my my biological mother was born in Guyana. And we know not that much about her ancestry because she's she's descended from, she's two generations from indentured slaves from mm. India. And we don't really know anything about them because the slaves. And do you know
0: which part of India no, or-
1: No, but we can now, we now have some identification of, of, well, it's not very precise because the resolution of those maps is determined by- the people in the paying database, and you know, what a surprise that the density of that resolution <laughs> for America and England and and wealthy Europe is very very high resolution, and for India, it's it's a big amorphous blob. But it, but it was it was the Mumbai region.
0: I mean, so one of the things which I found so interesting about your book, and I approached it as a total non-scientist. Right. I dropped all of the STEM subjects immediately after GCSE. I'm so sorry to upset you.
1: <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> um, not at all. Uh, I didn't do biology A-level and I wasn't very good at And they at let GCSE. you
0: train to be a doctor.
1: Yeah, yeah, chemistry and physics more important. And I sort of winged it as well because I was good at Latin. And you can get away with a lot in medicine and science if you're good at Latin.
0: So you were studying to be a doctor and you were like, I don't know if this patient is animal, vegetable or mineral, but we're <laughs> going
1: in anyway. Well, fortunately... I switched to straight science before I met a patient.
0: (laughs) Well, I think we're going to like get into like what that switch was and why in just a second. But just to end my confession, I uh, did English literature, arts and humanities all the way because I was like, I can spend thousands of pounds getting myself into debt, thinking about the thoughts and motivations of imaginary people. That's a great financial choice. But I read this book and one is that it... uh, opened up a world of complexity to me when I'd maybe thought about genetics and DNA as, uh, I guess, like a ruthless simplifier of, of the human condition. I was like, well, we're all laid bare in genetics. Um, and you, one of the things you were saying is that, well, no, the practice of genetics, the study of genetics, and what the data is showing you is human history at every level. So to hear you say that, well, what we can learn about ourselves is shaped by economics, um, geoeconomics, where wealth is concentrated in the world is another kind of peeling away of, I guess, the very romantic idea that I had of what genetics can tell us.
1: Well, it's really great that you say that. It's really interesting you say that as well, because I think the biggest challenge in being a both a professional scientist and a science communicator is that it's, it's persuading people that the, that the way we teach it or what you think you know about a subject is not actually what what we think is true. And we do it in various ways because you know, in physics, things are very non-experiential. Mm. So Brian Cox can point at the planets um, and say that there's a black hole thirteen billion light years away over there, and I
0: have to take his word for it.
1: You do because we don't know, right? We don't know that is based on on real uh, observations, and and it probably is true, but it's non-experiential. Or you can say you know quantum physics this table is made of subatomic particles which exist in multiple states at the same time depending on which way they are spinning and we don't we, we can touch it and it feels real but i can tell you that it, that, that what just happened only happened in your head right <laughs> so it's non experiential but genetics is the study of families and sex and history and everyone without question is part of that story. And so the preconceptions that come with genetics are not 100 years old, they're 10,000 years old, because we've been preoccupied with what people look like and how people behave and where your parents are from for the entirety of human history. And it's only in the last 50 years, but really 20 or even 10 years, that the academic study of genetics has begun to overturn the things that we thought were true. So I mean, this is special pleading. Mm -hmm. All scientists think that their subject is the least well represented in in the media.
0: It's like a persecution complex.
1: Yeah, but I think mine is definitely the the least well represented. You know, even the, 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 the simplification idea is absolutely crucial to this, that we simplify to teach genetics and actually therefore miss most of what's interesting about humans, which is complexity.
0: Well, hearing you describe genetics as the study of sex, family, and history, that seems perhaps more than a little bit influenced by the fact that your father was a psychologist. I mean, that was just pure Freud. I mean, do you think (laughs) that that has had an impact on your interest in the study of genetics as the point where science and social construct interact?
1: It's a... Okay, I mean... are you charging three hundred pounds an hour for this? Yeah, it's good but stuff. the
0: chaise long is <laughs> yeah, going to be brought thanks. in at any minute. Well, the,
1: the interesting thing about about so my dad definitely inculcated a love of science, but um, he was definitely not a Freudian. <laughs> and when he retired, he did say to me before we started recording, we were talking about The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. He said a line in his retirement speech, which is actually from The Simpsons, which is when you're right 51% of the time, you're wrong 49% of the time. And I think that's a nice assessment of the successes and failures of psychology as an academic discipline. So the love of science comes from him. I think in answer to the question, I, I don't think most people go into genetics as undergraduates wanting to engage with the social history Of humankind, or human evolution, or or, um, human social history—you know—we're just dorks. (laughs) You know, I'm really interested in DNA and how that stuff works. But there comes a point, I think, if you keep going, we can't ignore it. In my trajectory, it's partly because the history of my field is incredibly pernicious. In two dimensions, evolution and biology are rooted in colonial expansion and and racism. I, I argue, and I'm not the only person saying this. That biology emerges in service of European expansion, the political ideologies of, of empire. And more specifically, genetics emerges out of the political ideology of eugenics in the, in the 19th century. So most I think you know most geneticists, most working geneticists, people in labs all around the, the world, either don't know that or aren't that interested in it because there's a lot of work to be done.
0: Well, you uh, teach at UCL. Did you study there as well?
1: I did. Weirdly and slightly depressingly, I teach the course that I was an undergraduate on.
0: Oh man, you were like, first as tragedy and then as fast.
1: Yeah, Hotel Um, California.
0: (laughs) I mean, I also went to UCL. I was in the English department and many of my lectures, particularly for Chaucer and for Romantics, were in the Francis Galton Lecture Theatre. And when you go to A Russell Group University or, you know, Oxford or Cambridge, you're surrounded by the names of people who you never really think about, right? I don't think about, okay, so who was Sir John Sloan? I don't think about um, who was Francis Galton. It was only after I left that I was, you know, reading about eugenics and then up pops this guy's name and I go, what the fuck? So so, what was it like for you to be surrounded by the history of eugenics, both as a student and as an academic? And was that something which kicked off your interest in the relationship between the study of genetics and the history of eugenics?
1: Honestly, no. Eventually, yes. But as an undergraduate, also in the Galton Lecture Theatre, it was very normalized. This conversation was very normalized very early on. So I was an undergraduate in, in I was a first year in 1994, or five, something like that. Um, and in the introduction to evolution, the introduction to genetics courses, there sort of week two is the history of eugenics and the introduction to Francis Galton and those type of people, um, and so it was right there at the base of my academic and intellectual progress in genetics. Only recently have I discovered how abnormal that is. And it's abnormal because it happened at UCL. And I was in the Galton Laboratory, being taught in the Galton Lecture Theater. Galton founded what eventually became the genetics department, of which I am now um, a, a member, a lecturer, and it will never not amuse me that my salary is paid by Francis Galton. (laughs) <laughs> because he left a large financial legacy, which which funded various things and was basically a sort of slush fund for almost a century. century. Um, there was a eugenics inquiry in 2018, which finished in 2020, just before lockdown. And one of the outcomes of that was the redistribution of this money, which went to creating new fellowships and supporting various anti-racism um projects at UCL. So UCR. not buying
0: new skull measuring calipers?
1: No, no. Well, I do have, I have budget for that if, you, <laughs> if, if I go in that direction. No. Um, but they also redistributed to create a new lectureship, which is my, my position, which is uh, genetics in society.
0: So for the uninitiated viewer, what, what is eugenics and how did it come about?
1: So the way I frame eugenics is that it's a way of thinking. That it predates the existence of the word and Francis Galton by several thousand years. So it's the idea that you can shape or mould society for the better by selective breeding, by um, pairing people who you think have desirable qualities, or culling babies that you have that you think have uh, have undesirable qualities. And it's an ancient idea. It's first described in the Western canon in um, Republic. In books five and six, he talks about marriage festivals for the maintenance of good quality people in society, gold standard women to be matched with gold standard men.
0: No poets as well. He wanted uh, to exclude all poets from his ideal republic, did Plato. He the, thought they were liars.
1: They Liars? Mm. I didn't know that. Right To exclude them from society?
0: Yeah, so huh. um, if you are uh, making ideal partnerships, uh, poets wouldn't be a part of it. I don't know if um, being a poet is a hereditary trait, but...
1: Well, I, I mean, I, I can... This is probably not the time to discuss this, but I can see that argument. <laughs> we can talk about that some other time. No. So, an old idea. Um, and as far as we can tell, this, this idea exists either theoretically or in practice in pretty much every culture all around the world for as long as there have been humans.
0: I mean, aristocracy is a form of eugenics. When you think about it,
1: it kind of is. It absolutely is, and and I'm 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 kind of I've ended up being someone who's quite opposed to sort of taxonomic definitions and classifications for various reasons, which we might get into later. Um, but I often find that slapping labels on things is a substitute for actually thinking about what the thing is or what the thing does. So the we we don't mate randomly, and we never have mated randomly. We do select personally.
0: You didn't know me in my second year at uni. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> Do you go on?
1: Uh, There was a study a few years ago in, based in Australia, which was tracking sexually transmitted diseases amongst undergraduates. Um, and when they published the paper, they didn't realize that they'd inadvertently created a, a league table of sexual proclivities by subject And I wrote about this at the time, so this is a bit of a (laughs) cul-de-sac here, but you've just reminded me, I haven't thought about this for years. The first thing that we noticed as scientists was that there wasn't a science subject in the top half.
0: (laughs) Was history of art top?
1: No, history was top.
0: History was top?
1: Yeah, English was second. Of course it was. Psychology was top of science, and it's barely a science. (laughs) Evolution was next, so I was quite pleased about that. Okay. Biochemistry bottom.
0: That doesn't surprise me.
1: Anyway... We don't rate. We don't (laughs) mate randomly. Is the thought that I was having. Um, So we do select our partners, and we, to a certain extent, and historically, that obviously there's all sorts of valences within that. That there's not a complete free choice, but societies move in different directions all of the time as a result of these the interaction between biology and culture. What eugenics was formalised as a science in the 19th century, but what the idea behind it, the way of thinking of eugenics is that we should steer, the powerful should steer society in particular directions using that framework in in a, in a top-down way. It's not, this is me or individuals wanting to have families with this person or this person. It is that the government or the powerful decide who gets to reproduce and who doesn't. And so what happens in the 19th century in the sort of post-Malthus years, where this is be- beginning to be a really serious conversation.
0: Malthus is the population guy. Yeah,
1: yeah, so um, priest, polemicist, um, so early mathematician in, in sort, of, uh, sort of trying to understand social demographics. And he, he identifies what has never been demonstrated to be true an important idea, which is that populations grow at exponential rates when they're happy, but resources grow at linear rates. So we're always do if he's right, we're always doomed to have sort of boom and bust cycles, and it it almost doesn't matter whether he's right or not. But but at in the nineteenth century, in in sort of in the wake of the Industrial Revolution and with colonial expansion and mass immigration and urbanization, and which means a much more visible poor. The transfer of responsibility of poor people and people at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale from the church with the Tudor poor laws to the state was something that was happening with various acts with names like the Madhouse Act and the Lunatic Act, and then by the, 19, by the Edwardian period, the Mental Deficiencies Act. And so you've got asylums emerging as a way of treating um, or dealing with, hiding um, people deemed unworthy. And then Galton just drops into this, parachutes into this world. He's, he's Charles Darwin's half cousin. And Darwin in 1859 describes evolution by natural selection doesn't talk about humans at all. Darwin is a extraordinarily liberal man for the like, for for extremely wealthy privileged man in 19th century Britain. But his cousin is Francis Galton, who is awful, extraordinarily bright, cannot see past his own prejudices, travels around the world, writes a best-selling travel book based on his travels around Africa, um, comes back as a extreme white supremacist. And he applies the ideas that are sort of set up about evolution by his cousin, who he adores and venerates and and believes that genius is a biological category that flows through his family.
0: And it's see, whenever someone goes, genius is an inherited trait, no one ever goes, and it's not in my family. They go, and it is in my family.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And this is an example of him not being able to see past his own biases. His first book in this sort of area is called Hereditary Genius. And it is a very methodological statistical analysis of the great men of British history. Prime ministers, MPs, poets, does include poets. Okay. All right. Lawyers and various people. He's absolutely uninterested in women at all. And the difference with his with, with this book and the significance of this book is that it is a scientific, a statistical, numerical um, application to great man theory of history, this very Whiggish view. Um, now, the stats are terrible, but it's sort of foundational in a scientific understanding of hereditary uh, behaviors.
0: And what role does race play in this? Because um, one of the things I've been writing about recently is trying to sort of put together like a little potted history of race, going, um, how does this emerge as a technology of governance and how does it change through the 19th century? And one of the things which I found extraordinary is that you couldn't separate racist discourses and ideas from ableist discourses and ideas and classist discourses and ideas. They were all sort of seen as Mm. part of the same thing, which is there are certain kinds of human who are deficient or inadequate or inherently stupid. Um, and these are inherited characteristics that pass down through generation and that's got nothing to do with the fact that from generation to generation, you've enslaved people or kept them poor or denied them education or treated them horribly.
1: Mm. Yes, exactly. These characteristics are immutable. And race race science is almost uncontested at, the, at this time in, in Britain and in Europe and America as a, as a result. The racial categories are fixed, and they are immutable, um, and they are inherently hierarchical. So the classification system that we have rejected in science in the 20th century, um, because the evidence stacks up against it, is, is the foundation of biology. It's designed by Linnaeus. In the, in the late 18th century, in which he describes, he's the first person, not, not absolutely, but the first significant person to describe the different types of humans from around the world. Four of them he starts off with and moves up to five with an extra category in, in a later edition of his big book, *Systema Naturae. And the categorizations are initially a, a biological, a physical characteristic, skin color. Mm-hmm. Secondly, another one, hair color and texture. And then the next ones after that are unequivocal value judgments. I mean, extraordinarily racist. They're racist to us now. They're racist in their day as well because they're hierarchical. So um, uh, sub-Saharan African people have silky black skin, um, tight curly hair, uh, are lazy, capricious, physically strong, um, and and sexually loose. Right? Right? Um, uh, homo sapiens asiaticus so broadly what we would refer to as east East asian today are yellow-skinned these are the words that he Mm -hmm. uses Um, straight black hair haughty unimaginative uh, governed by tradition homo sapiens americanus so indigenous Mm -hmm. americans
0: um, not George W. Bush, which is where my brain went immediately.
1: no, not definitely not him. so nat- Native Americans, indigenous Americans, um, straight black hair, red skin, um, governed by customs, uh, you know blah blah blah. and you got he, he comes up with these four categories, and then the uh, Homo sapiens, Europaeus, are white-skinned with blue eyes, and they are creative, imaginative, graceful, and industrious. And and he this is the this is the setup for biology this is the origin of biology everyone that comes after him has another crack at it uh, introduces new metrics like you you know you alluded to skull measurements or all those sorts of things um, but there isn't a single example of categorizations of of humans between the seventeenth and the twentieth century which isn't hierarchical and doesn't put white Europeans as superior
0: so what what does the study of genetics then tell us about these categories because of course some of these are inherited traits skin tones and inherited traits i share mine with my mum. um eye color hair color hair texture um how do these uh it's the word phenotypes phenotypes yeah yes (laughs) Um, How how do do these phenotypes overlap with geography? Because that's the thing that's being described, is that these clusters of characteristics overlap with places in the world.
1: Yeah, that's right. And it's really important to recognise that people are different from around the world. Because I think one of the mistakes that um, well-intentioned anti-racist people have made in, in history is to adopt a sort of blank slate view that everyone is the same, and I think the reason that becomes such a problematic argument and inflames people who who maybe aren't uh, overt Nazis or actual racists is that we are very visual organisms and we look and see people are different from around the world and have different physical characteristics the, what, what genetics did in the 20th century is... Uh, genetics is is the real metric of human similarities and difference because it is what is different in our, at a molecular level rather than what is physical. Um, and it influences what is physical, of course. But what we began to see is that the categorizations that had been used, initially using these very crude types like skin color, and then as they became more... Um, detailed things like skull measurements and the various things like that, is that they didn't correspond to the underlying genetic variation that we see around the world. In broad sc- scale, they sort of do. We see continental um, uh, clustering of, of I mean, it's difficult to talk about this without getting into some chewy maths, and I won't do that, but clustering <laughs> is a you know real uh, mathematical way, way of trying to identify things that are similar and things that are different. But what we find, is that there are some broad similarities around the world in terms of genetic clustering. And largely, very broadly, they correspond to continental land masses. But beyond that, the way we talk about race does not correspond with genetic variability.
0: I mean, this is gonna sound really thick, but I went to I went to Mexico on holiday last year and it was amazing. But I went to Mexico on holiday and um, I was traveling around in the South and I kept walking into people who looked just like me. So Same skin tone, same hair texture. The thing that was different is that they tended to have more aquiline noses rather than like, you know, squidgy Bengali ones. But I was walking down the road in uh, San Cristobal and I literally collided with a man who was the dead spit of my uncle. Dead spit. And I gawped at this poor guy and he was like, is this girl okay? (laughs) And one of the things that that taught me in just a really concrete way is that, yes, you've got these clusterings, but as far as I know, I have no indigenous Mexican heritage whatsoever. It's, you know, Bengali as far back as we cared to record it. Um, so this racial distinction of dark skin, dark straight hair, brown eyes, short, it was spanning continents.
1: Yeah, well you can I mean there are undoubtedly physical similarities between people around the world in different in different phenotypes and different physical physical traits. That doesn't necessarily mean they have the share, same shared genetic origin. So there's this is an idea which is broadly sort of we could call it convergent evolution, right? The, the straightness and darkness of your hair, um, you know, bearing in mind the overall similarity between all. Well, so you're
0: hair, assuming it's natural, but uh,
1: that's, that's great wig. That's straight black. <laughs> okay, that's straight black. Um, might be completely different from the straightness and blackness of hair from someone from east asia or from someone from who is of native american or or um indigenous american descent i don't know that but i i'm quite happy to to say that <laughs> and um because that sort of variation get
0: furious hairdressers in the comments oh, being it, like but, actually but they they
1: get but they get furious about anything though they get <laughs> they get so angry about things that are intuitively what they don't think is is true, or they do think it's true that I'm I'm countering. This is the point that we were talking about earlier. It's that experiential thing, that like you know the example I sometimes give is that I know you said you dropped biology as soon as you could, but do All you remember right. eye colour?
0: I yes, I
1: remember eye colour. Okay, because that's how we teach genetics. Okay, yeah. There's a there's a gene which if you have the brown version of the gene, it's dominant over the blue version.
0: That's what I hear.
1: Right, and if you've got one copy of the brown, then you'll have brown It'll eyes. Win. Yeah. And if you've got, you have to have two copies of the blue eyed version to have blue eyes, right? Mm-hmm. You've just passed GCSE biology.
0: Why do so many Iranians have green eyes?
1: Well, it, it, because what I just said is not true, <laughs> right? Because it's incorrect. Okay. And it is the foundation of how we teach genetics. Incidentally, that model was invented by the American chief eugenicist in 1907, a guy called Charles Davenport, who was the American version of Francis Galton. And he was obsessed with the notion that everything, whether it's eye color or hair color or skin color, but also crazy behavioral traits like seafaringness or sexual proclivities or prostitution, all of these things that for him, were they worked in exactly the same way as eye color genetics does. And you just pointed out by saying that Iranian thing about green eyes, what the problem with it is. There aren't two eye colors. There isn't one gene which dominates the the control of, of eye colors. Uh, uh, there are at least 15. There's a third gene. So there's the, the blue and brown version of the same gene. There's also a green gene, which it, it heavily influences green eyes. Um, and the truth of the matter is that the model I just described, the Mendelian view of genetics, is is more like a guideline.
0: <laughs> I mean, uh, so let's say, um, I mean, I hate to break it to you, I mean, we're all going to die and it's, it's going to happen to you one day too. But, um, you know, the archaeologists of the future, they, they dig you up and they test your DNA, were they able to accurately put together how you would have looked? Because one of the things that the internet racists love to say to me is, well, you say you're English, but when you die and they dig you up, they'll be able to say that you weren't because they tested you genetically.
1: Well, if you die with a passport on you, (laughs) then that's the end of that question. If I die
0: with like the lyrics to England till I die in my (laughs) back pocket.
1: I don't know. This is a thing that the internet racists don't get. Which is that these these things, nationality is a social construct, right? Boundary borders are social constructs. You're English because you have an English, you were born in, were you born in England?
0: I was. Well, then and you're more, English. And more to the point, I'm English because I'm emotionally repressed.
1: <laughs> I can't comment on that. Although I'm sure there's a genetic component to it. <laughs> but they, it's, this, this is the sort of central pillar of all of my work about eugenics, and race—it's really the question of how scientific ideas get marshaled into pre-existing political ideologies. Um, and I, there's there's a lot of work in this domain within the history of science and within history and within sociology. But I'm trying to approach it from the point of view of a of a geneticist, of a, of a scientist, um, because that's what you know. We've talked about we've talked about the history of the, the birth of scientific racism. We've talked about the birth of, of eugenics. But in both examples, this is scientists or proto scientists making new discoveries or making new pronouncements. Because I think in both cases, they're not really very good science. Um, and and then they then the political classes, of which most of these guys are members anyway, use that those new discoveries or those new pronouncements in order to justify their own pre-existing um, beliefs. So. It's, the phrase I use in talking about eugenics is that it's bigotry dressed up as biology. And so your internet racist saying you're not, you're not English, no matter how 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 many you're Spurs fan, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So so no matter how much you claim to be a football fan, no matter how much you, what you sound like or what, however English you feel you are, you're not English.
0: But I mean, can can you reliably reconstruct who someone was? through genetics, or can you only get likelihoods? Like, oh, you know, this person was, you know, 40% likely to taste coriander like it's soap.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, part, I mean part, if, there, if there's one thing that I want people to recognize in all of my work is that g- genetics is not deterministic, it is probabilistic. So you started by asking me about 23andMe. Um, my, the, the gene, brown blue eye gene, the version that i 've got, if you look at a population sixty nine percent of people with the version that i've I've got have brown eyes right so that's two thirds of people with that genotype have this phenotype now of course, I know I have brown eyes because mirrors <laughs> right i didn't need to pay for that service but you the way you just framed that question was 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 perfect right because if you dug me up in ten thousand years when my eyes color is not available, but you did manage to get the DNA sequence for that particular gene, you've got a two out of three chance that you're going to get my eye color roughly right without counting the other genes, the green eye gene, the other 14 or however many genes are involved in pigmentation in, in, the, in, the, in the iris. So yeah, probabilistically, you could make a decent fist at saying it, it's it's more than 50% likely that this guy had brown eyes but you wouldn't bet the farm on that though would you I
0: mean, then how did you feel about like the cheddar man reconstruction mm. because obviously it was a massive news story the reconstruction of the cheddar man was like he's got dark skin and he looks like the south asian girls who have the blue contacts it's startling um did you look at that and you go oh i'm not sure i mean was it nailed on do you think it's
1: it's a really accurate? interesting case study and it was done by colleagues and friends so i'm very i wasn't involved in the study itself but i was very closely in, involved in in how it was disseminated the the scientific paper which describes cheddar man and the 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 genome sequence of cheddar man is is pretty circumspect and i think is it gets it pretty pretty accurately so with these particular genotypes we predict that this person this man will have uh, darker skin in this sort of range will have eye color in this sort of range. Because, you know, science is, it's, it's boringly circumspect. We always have to say. You're always hedging. Always hedging. You know, there's a, the classic line is w- one of the presidents, I can't remember which one it was, when it was a scientific advisor for Roosevelt or something says, can you get me a one-armed scientist? So they can't say, yeah, but on the other <laughs> hand, right? It's probably apocryphal. Um, But that's what we have to do, right? Because we don't pronounce truths in science. We're always circumspect because every result is only conditionally correct. So that's what the paper says. But what people want, understandably, is not to read about the probability of whether this guy had this range of skin color or hair texture or whatever. They want to see what this guy was like. And that's the most exciting thing about this field, is that we can not just reconstruct historical events or actions, but we can see what people well, this is a guy, a man who died 10,000 years ago in England. Somerset? Is Cheddar in Somerset? Listen, I've
0: never left London in my life.
1: <laughs> I think it's Somerset. Anyway, people will be more angry about that. How can he pro- make pronouncements when he doesn't <laughs> even know where the, the Somerset is? It's back the West goes, Country. Cheddars in the West Country. Yeah, right. That's exciting. So, what we often do, and what often happens is you create a maquette or a bust and, and a reconstruction. You have to make decisions in doing that where you can't be circumspect, where you can't be conditional. And so there was a choice. What, what pigment this is the range? What color are we going to make this guy's skin? What color are we going to make this guy's eyes? Now, I don't think it's wrong, and it's quite possible that that, that reconstruction was literally a mirror image of what that guy looked like, but it's also quite possible that he didn't look like that very much at all.:
0: I mean, I, I, I want to talk about the appeal of um, DNA and understanding your genetic self. Um, You know who Michael K. Williams is? Or was? Yes. Played Omar Little. The
1: greatest uh, anti-hero in all American culture.
0: Um, I mean, one of my favourite bits of The Wire is when he's in the turquoise pyjamas and he's on his way to the shops to get the Honey Nut Cheerios. Omar Um, coming. (laughs) Yeah, Omar strolling. Um, He... uh, was approached by a kind of you know DNA testing lab that markets itself specifically to African Americans and they made a little short documentary of his experience of doing this ancestry test and it was so emotional Mm -hmm. for him and he calls up a friend of his who also did the test uh, called Isaiah Washington and it Just so happens that they both could trace some heritage back to a particular tribe in Senegal. And it is undoubtedly just this powerful moment. And they're both crying, they're both saying, I knew we were brothers. And I found myself feeling quite uncomfortable about it because, on the one hand, this is so clearly important to them. And who am I to say this is a load of horseshit? But on the other, I found something. And you when you look at how it's sort of measured, it's like, you know, one out of thirty-two ancestors. I was like, but this is as much of a story as the one African Americans had to create for themselves after the displacement and the trauma and the huge cultural, psychological, political break that was the experience of slavery.
1: I, I write about this in in um one of my books, How to Argue with a Racist, because I think it is it it is incredibly hard to process this. I think it's exploitation. Um, uh, the fact that those some of those companies are, are owned by African Americans doesn't make this any easier conversation. Um, the desire for narrative satisfaction, I think, is the main fuel for all of these ancestry companies, not not just the ones targeting uh, the African American descendants of the in- enslaved experience. Um, but they 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 the descendants of the enslaved is a special case because there is no history their history was erased and the the history of the transatlantic slave routes is that the, some you know up up to 12 million people taken from four possibly five just maybe six countries um and mixed en route and then redistributed well half of them died in transit but um traded all of their ancestry completely lost, never recorded. Um, And then the American story is is also such that once African people are in um, the Americas, although I'm mostly talking about the USA, they are redistributed um, and and sold. And um, uh, the the sexual history and the family history of the African American experience is unique because of that process, which means that the average African-American genome is very distinct from the African genomes from which they they were taken. Now you couple that with the fact that the, there is more genetic diversity within the African continent than in the rest of the world put together, which means that on average, someone from Senegal is more different genetically to someone from Angola than either of those people are to anyone else on the rest of the planet, and that's just the what the genetics says. So, I know this is quite a brain-scrambling concept. No,
0: no, no, I'm with you. I'm with you.
1: But but that's this is one of the problems with the earlier conversation about about how we categorize people. We say black people, right? Because Linnaeus said black people, Homo sapiens afer or Africanus. But actually it's a completely incoherent biological category because of the amount of genetic diversity that exists in, in people from the, who, who are in Africa or from the African diasporas. So how this relates to the transatlantic slave trade means that you've got two people taken from maybe neighboring tribes or counties or whatever the equivalent is or, or countries who are taken from their, uh, their, their birthplace, put onto ships, Mixed around, they live or die. They then, then traded around, forcibly mated potentially. Um, we we know from the genetics now that the that there is a lot of European DNA mm. in the African American genome, and mostly it is from male Europeans into female Afri- African Americans. So you know, figure that out. Um, interestingly, the converse is also true. M- many. Uh, white Americans have up to 20% of African ancestry that we can measure in their DNA. So again, it's another example of how...
0: There was a mixed race Medici, I believe. I can't remember if it was a Cosimo or an Alessandro de Medici, um, whose father was obviously an Italian aristocrat, part of one, one of the most... Um, powerful families in Italian history and whose mother was an African servant um, of this mixed race Medici uh, his children then married into the rest of the Italian aristocracy and it was never spoken of again because after that race as categories of human who must never be mixed became more and more historically important and nobody wanted to talk about the african blood that was in their families
1: well that in america it becomes formalized as the one drop rule so there's a, there's a moment in the in the 17th century where the, so the 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 difference between hypodescent and hyperdescent flips legally so that is where you um, you take on what, what status what, so Wait,
0: what's hyperdescent and so hypodescent so the legal
1: the legal status of a child is inherited from the more or less powerful uh, cultural parent. So, hy- hypodescent is inheriting it from t- typically from the mother. Hyperdescent is, I think I've got that the right way around, from the father. But anyway, the point is that in, in, in the 17th century, there was, a, there was a legal challenge to this because a boy was born of a mixed partnership, an English lawyer and an enslaved woman, and the child inherited the status of the father. Now the Virginia assembly weren't happy with this and so they flipped the law. So which meant that the pairing of a white person with a black person the child will always inherit the status the legal status of the black person from that point onwards. And then over the course of the next you know couple of centuries as racism becomes enshrined and legalized um sort of formally uh, legalized ever more into the what becomes known as the, the one drop rule, which is that if you, if you have any ancestor who is African or African-American, then you legally are a, a, a black person. And this the absurdity of this is, is perhaps best showcased in Thomas Jefferson having six children uh, with, we think, what, as a sitting president, all of whom looked white but were legally black and therefore, legally born into slavery, so you've got this situation where the sitting president, one of the founding fathers, has children with Sally Heming, who herself is mixed race um, and they are born enslaved, which is a, an absurdity and, they, and they're, they're you know they're ostensibly white people as the social definition goes now the one drop rule continued in 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 America what this, this now trips over into the, the other book, the eugenics book, because a big part of the story of eugenics is is the ultimate realization of this type of thinking during the Holocaust. Mm. In 1930s Germany, um, the Nazis were trying to establish the rules of inheritance so that you could determine who was pure German, Aryan, and who was Jewish. And they looked at the one-drop rule, they looked at the American framework for it and decided that it was too strict.
0: I mean one of the things which I've read is that the Nazis looked at American anti-miscegenation laws which prohibited um you know the marriage and really the having of children between consenting mixed race parties. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about is we tend to think about eugenics as this Nazi phenomenon and therefore it's other and it's over there and it's swastikas and goose stepping, but it's inscribed in the University of London on, you know, very buildings. Um, You had immigration criteria for moving to America, which was based on eugenicist principles. Do you think that as a society, we've ever properly reckoned with that—that that hidden history within our own history.
1: No, absolutely not. Um, we we haven't at all. And th- there's an interesting parallel—well, not non-parallel—between uh, attempts to understand the history of race and attempts to understand the history of eugenics. I think it's partly because eugenics is a sort of technical-sounding word. People just don't know what it is, mostly. Whereas you say, you know, race, racism. Everyone knows what, what we're talking about here. I, I think eugenics is one of the defining ideas of the 20th century because it is an idea that frames the Second World War. It's, it is the lifeblood of the Third Reich, racial purity through selection. It is the lifeblood of the um, enforced sterilization of somewhere between 70 and 500,000 people in America. It is the lifeblood of the emergence of great replacement theory and profound anti-Semitism that comes that becomes formalized in the 1910s and 20s with people like Henry Ford. That we I think we sometimes think that because of the atrocities of the Nazis and the Holocaust, that was the end of the story, and that this was unique to the deranged ideology of Hitler and and the Third Reich. But the truth of the story is that it's an idea which starts in the UK, starts in London, or is formalised in in London, but is never enacted in Britain. We never had. Enforced. Why was that? Well, it's mostly due to the campaigning of G.K. Chesterton,
0: G- the the detective novelist G.K. Chesterton.
1: Yeah, it's a weird quirk of this history that we come up with the idea scientifically with people like Francis Galton. Um. It becomes exported and influences German eugenics. It's never called eugenics in Germany, it's called Rassenhygiene, race hygiene. Um, It gets exported incredibly efficiently to America where they have eugenics policies on the books from 1907 for most of the 20th century. But the legislation in the UK was proposed several times, mostly by Churchill um, who is very interested perhaps obsessed is a little bit strong but incredibly interested in the american models particularly in places like indiana which has the first uh, enforced sterilization rules we we know this because he writes about it very openly and this is a this is a cultural conversation that's happening all the time in edwardian britain but churchill's the main uh, sort of political driver of this and
0: did he want that for the colonies or did he want that for that's for home for the uk Eng- for,
1: yeah for for england it's home Right the, the the problem is inebriates women with menstrual problems the the question of race which you asked earlier but mm. I didn't really answer is a bit fuzzy because the definitions of race are quite flexible through time so a lot of the eugenics policies or suggested policies in the UK were aimed at the Irish right deemed then a degenerate race of alcoholics um, and, and that ties in very closely with first-wave feminism as well. So a lot of the first-wave feminists really interested in the reproductive rights of women in order that th- the sterilization of certain groups of people, such as the Irish, uh, could be so, enacted.
0: Um, so Mary Stopes
1: is a monster. I mean, most of my work seems to center around awful men. So it's quite, well, it's nice to have an awful woman.
0: More women, <laughs> eugenicists. Um, so, so what was the deal with, with Mary Stokes? Because I only um, know her as yeah. the reason why if I get pregnant, my life won't be totally wrecked by it.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. So a name most closely associated with reproductive health and abortions for women. I, I can't remember the exact numbers. I do quote it in the book, but it's it's something like 40,000. Um, uh, abortions around the world per year. So in my view, an extremely positive, necessary Mm. um, medical um, provision of medical care for women. Double thumbs up, right? Her reasons for being interested in the reproductive rights of of women were because she was a Nazi. And I don't mean that in a, everyone's a Nazi who disagrees with me. She was an actual Nazi. She was a, a complete white supremacist total fascist, obsessed with social structure and and exterminating certain races, including she, she sent poetry, love poetry, to Hitler in 1938, so you know, right up against the war. This is not like naive. This
0: is not like oh, I'm interested in this young Adolf guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He
1: seems quite charming. no, no, no. This is we're about we're about to declare war. As uh, she sends a book of love poetry to Hitler, in which I forget the exact verse, but she that she rhymes. Um, she says something like the the Russians are a curse the Prussians are much worse the Jews are anyway it's so mm. a little a few a few b- bits of poetry declaring how, how awful these 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 races are and that um enforced sterilization is is basically the way forward for the purification of white english people so i i i you know i bang on about stopes because of the poetry but mm. she's not she's extreme but not unusual in in this sort of domain And influenced by Frances Galton, she was also at UCL. Oh my God. I know. Did her PhD. Well, I think the first PhD in geology by a woman.
0: I want to ask you uh, something which might be quite a technical question, but it's something which I've always been interested in. So you've got the study of social epidemiology, which is looking at the way in which different policies have different outcomes on the health of a population. So for instance, the impact of unemployment or deprivation or inequality on health outcomes. You also start looking at things like the impact of housing on birth rates or uh, the provision of affordable childcare. And obviously, eugenics is about producing certain kinds of population by either facilitating or curtailing people's ability to reproduce, right? So you affect what's in the population. Is there a neat dividing line between social epidemiology, which is relatively uncontroversial? Lots of people who, um, you know, would say eugenics very bad, we're perfectly comfortable with social epidemiology. Is there a neat dividing line between the two or can these things bleed into one another?
1: Not only do, can they bleed into into one another, but the, the assumption, which I don't think you're making, but I think m- many people do, but the assumption that eugenics in its foundation and certainly in the Edwardian period is a right-wing ideology is not accurate. It is embraced by the emerging socialist uh, movement in in Britain with exactly the same fervor.
0: The Fabians were they into the, a bit of the, eugenics?
1: The, so both Beatrice and Sidney Webb were active proponents of of eugenics. William Beveridge uh was a, expressed positive support for enforced sterilization for men specifically uh, throughout his life. Um Uh, George Bernard Shaw, well, he kind of vacillates on how socialist he actually actually is. H.G. Wells, a lot of cultural figures are all super into the idea of of purifying or improving the quality of the the stock of the British people. It's a reflection of power again in that almost all of these people come from wealth and privilege. And also a really important thing is that almost everyone who's a key eugenicist of this period Goes to all of the men go to one of five public schools, and they all go to Oxbridge. And so there is a I think it's a part of the foundation of this way of thinking is that there are natural hierarchies of people. They all venerate the classics. Uh, you know, a society which had no social mobility and where there were strata of society where social mobility is non-existent. I think that there is an uh, there is a discussion to be had about. In this Darwinian era, where the rise of a softer form of Christianity, which is an, which is you know ostensibly a bottom up religion that empowers the poor in principle, um, that the the powerful members of society, as the power of the church is beginning to wane, they say, "Well you know hold on a this is a challenge to our absolute god given authority, and now Darwin is saying there is mutability in in culture as well." So how how do we maintain power? Oh, I know.
0: We have a, a secular hierarchy which is also immutable. Yeah. I mean, that 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 definitely makes sense as a cultural study of um eugenics, moving towards the present and indeed the future. You've got the emergence of technologies like CRISPR, mm. um, which I thought was a kind of salad spinner for ages, and now realize that it's a form of gene editing, I believe. That presents all sorts of ethical questions, because you might be able to do something like identify and edit the gene which leads to something like Huntington's disease. But there are also many other conditions, many of which people have and lead happy and fulfilled and healthy lives, um, which reintroduce this question of, should there be a limit on our ability to change what kind of people are in the human population? I mean, what what are your thoughts on it?
1: Well, I run a 20-hour course <laughs> a, a, a trying to address that question. We don't
0: have a time no, limit we, on the recording. Okay,
1: great. All right. I have slides. <laughs> All right. I'm going to frame this answer by talking about something I mentioned earlier, which is that the semantics of this argument are, I think, not irrelevant. Because um, I got a hashtag... Search Permanent hashtag search in my, on my Twitter for hashtag eugenics. And 95% of them are anti-vaccination people or anti-COVID lockdown people just going, it's eugenics, right? Now, I, I think that, you know, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, obviously, and, and I think they're completely wrong about that. But I also think they've misunderstood what eugenics was and is. Um, and this idea that it's a way of thinking more than anything else. Giving it that name um, and then most closely associating the word eugenics with the atrocities of the Second World War has effectively done a disservice to the mindset which is behind eugenics, which is that populations can be controlled through biological means. Now, what, what, what you, I think the, the sort of evolution of eugenics as an idea is the move away from the top-down approach that this is a government-imposed strategy for the people, which comes from both both the left and and the right. Um, And What happens in the the years after the the war, after the Second World War, is a, a sort of cultural shift within the world of science away from the hereditarian position, which is that nature Genetics is more dominant over nurture, which is the environment. Nature versus nurture, by the way, a phrase coined by Francis Galton.
0: fuck's sake!
1: <laughs> his intellectual legacy cannot be um, underestimated. It, it, they, they, he invented the weather map. Um, so the first weather map was published in the Times and it was his work. It was actually the day after the weather, so of limited use. He invented... <laughs> um, he was foundational for the study of fingerprints mm-hmm. for forensics because there's similar questions that he was interested in. is this, is this Are my fingerprints inherited from my father or mother or are they unique to me?
0: So he's made it harder for me to commit crimes. Francis Galton was still alive. It's on site.
1: Yeah. I mean, many people consider that fingerprinting thing to be positive for... Anyway, forget that. Um, he debunked phrenology, which was big at the time. And that, that's interesting because you would have thought that's exactly the type of... Uh, sort of biological essentialist pseudoscience that someone like him would be super into. But more than being a white supremacist and a um, and a, a sort of proto-fascist, he was a data nerd. I think we see similar characteristics in the data bro behavior of contemporary data bros as we do in Francis Galton. Um, I mean, say.
0: there's a kind of... Um... You know, take someone like Elon Musk, who genuinely believes that people like him need to reproduce and impregnate absolutely anything that moves. I mean, do you think that there is a neo eugenicist movement within Silicon Valley? Uh,
1: yes, I, I do. I think that the we have a cultural issue, which is that people, powerful people, discovering things for the first time. I mean, if only there was a phrase about history and repeating, um, and <laughs> you know, do I? I don't know whether there is a, a phrase that, that describes that, but it, it's, it's, you know, when you when you study history and realize, especially when you study the classics, you realize that all of this shit has already happened. It just gets dressed up with with new tech, and and I think we do see that with eugenics. I do that mindset is the same. Great replacement theory has never gone away. Uh, and it's more popular now than ever before, especially in America. It really is founded in those years because of enormous amounts of immigration into America in the years 1900 to 1915, which is shut down in 1924 um, with the Johnson Act. Uh, and the key advisor on that is one of the main eugenicists, a guy called Harry Lachlan, who was also the main eugenics advisor to the Nazis in Berlin during those same era, which was funded by the way, by the Rockefeller Foundation. So this is, this is a, it's so culturally normalized at this point in America, that it's just, it's just part of society, that there are biological strata that are immutable and essential. And that if you want to improve society, then we have to take a biological view not the social not 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 that that poverty is inherited because it is poverty is inherited but that doesn't mean that it's biological <laughs> um and so there's all these, these sort of classic case studies that emerge out of out of this era which give them definitive answers Harry Lachlan produces an enormous document um which describes the biological characteristics of pe- of different countries and presents it to the immigration Committee in 1924, and says these people are better than these people. This is here's the ranking here, and this is why immigration didn't end in 1924. It just became incredibly streamlined because, you know, North European German Germanic people are just better than Slavs or Italians or Irish, right? So the, you know, the the the, the, the cultural racisms uh, fluctuate depending on the on the era.
0: I mean, I, I want to get back to this question of the technology we've mm. got now, because I appreciate what you're saying about eugenics being top down, mm. and that there is a much broader history of eugenics outside of Nazi Germany. But let's say um, the technologies that you know could be available to me, ranging from embryo selection to abortion to something like CRISPR, I ha- would have... An unprecedented amount of control over what kind of child I might have, and how I make that decision is obviously hugely influenced by ableism—the way in which we uh, view people who have, you know, long-term illnesses or who have disabilities. To get to this question of of how we may internalize or reproduce eugenesis. Logic. I mean, there's a conflict between, for instance, advocates of um, disability rights and advocates of women's absolute right to choose in terms of aborting a fetus who has down syndrome, for Mm -hmm. instance. Does something like CRISPR you know it revives these ethical discussions over should there be limits on how much we can choose to eradicate certain conditions? certain kinds of body, certain kinds of illnesses, certain kinds of disabilities from the human population. Because someone, you know, say an advocate of um, the social model of disability will go, well, that lets society off the hook. We Mm. should be changing society, not the kind of bodies that are in it.
1: Yeah, well, politically, I I pretty much largely agree with with what you've just said. The the, the new technologies that allow things like embryo selection or in the future gene editing, um, this this is a hairy area. There's there's a couple of things. There's a couple of sort of I'm going to be sciencey and and tedious about Do it, it, which is that the technology is very limited in its availability, right? So I've we estimate that something like six million people have been born from the IVF process since 90, since Louise Brown in 1979. So I mean that's the population of I, I don't know a country that has six million people <laughs> in it. So it's not insignificant, but in terms of it being in, uh, the type of strategy that would have been imposed from the state, say the Nazi state or the American state in the twentieth century, it's not really a significant number, and it's really only available to the wealthy West. Um, there's a second sort of scientific caveat to that, which is to do with the hot conversation about brown and blue eyes. Mm. the the public conv- The public discourse about genetic essentialism and genetic determinism is so heavily influenced by science fiction that it's not really realistic in any way. You can't select for eye color because of the conversation we've just just had, right? So, and you can't
0: get your money back either if you get a brown-eyed baby rather course. than a blue-eyed baby. And
1: when it comes to things like behavioral traits, which are never controlled by single genes, which we are capable of editing. So behavioral things like personality or intelligence, which is always the, you know, that it always comes down to... to questions of intelligence. And I think that's a slightly separate conversation, but we need to have it. Um, the, the idea that you could edit, gene edit for intelligence and then select is really a scientific fantasy. That doesn't mean that it, it won't be possible in the future, but we're talking decades away at best from a purely functional and scientific point of view. Um, and then on top of that, there's the whole fetishization of metrics associated with behaviors Particularly for intelligence. And that is inherent to the eugenics movement. So I I think that IQ has validity as a metric. I think that it is a deeply problematic historical, its history is, is profoundly problematic, but it has some scientific validity with tons of caveats and tons of cautions. Not least because we've been measuring it for a hundred years with all of those caveats and cautions in place, but it is a data set that is, that, that if you're very careful, has some utility. Most people aren't careful about it, right? And it's become fetishized as a, you know, yesterday I I, I saw a headline that the, the youngest member of Mensa, has been identified.
0: As the four-year-old kid with the really cute glasses.
1: Oh, I didn't see that one. Was it? Yeah, that is, that's the kid. Four. Yeah, he's four uh, years old. I mean, sure, it measures something, but why is that? Why, why is that something valued by the media and by society over finding? I don't know the kindest four-year-old in Britain, which I think would would, would propagate a much healthier society if we if we valued. Behaviors and characteristics which which didn't have this specific intelligence metric uh, associated with them, and so that ties into the ableist conversation as well. Because initially, the subjects of eugenic selection in the in Victorian and Edwardian period include people with obvious physical disabilities, right? but then it becomes extended to less obvious physical disabilities and then it becomes extended to mental health or behavioral traits or, or 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 pretty much anything that they deemed undesirable and that is that's the sort of fundamental ableist view that people with achondroplasia so classic classical dwarfism um are part of the eugenics anti-selection um sort of criteria of, of that era. Um, the, I, I don't have answers to these as, as a conversation, by the way. You know, I think this is one of the hardest questions that we, we face. And Down syndrome is a particular case study, which due to its biological underpinnings, it, it is unique and is deeply difficult to, to, to talk about. The reasons being that, so it is, it's a chromosomal abnormality, um, and it's identifiable very early on in pregnancy because because of, its, of the phenotype that that abnormality creates. Now, the second thing worth saying is that because it's a whole chromosome rather than just a single gene or a handful of genes, the range, the phenotype um, that, that comes as a result of trisomy 21 is huge. Um, and then it's also hugely socially mediated as well. So the availability of resources, so a, a, I don't know, a single parent having a, a kid with Down syndrome who is at the bottom end of the, of the spectrum in terms of cognitive abilities is an entirely different category to a, a wealthy person or wealthy family having a kid with Down syndrome who's at the top end of, of, that, of, of those abilities. But we kind of lump them all together and we can't identify those differences in utero. So the technology available says at nine weeks, you can identify with, with a high probability, with a high success prediction that this is a baby carrying trisomy 21. And now that comes with the ready in, in, the, in the in the West and in more, more liberal countries, it comes with the free access to abortions. And what we found is that in Denmark and in Iceland, where early identification and um, early identification exists and free availability of of abortions is universal, what we found is that Down syndrome has effectively been eradicated. Uh, In America, weirdly, for the wrong reasons, it's actually slightly on the rise, but that's because abortions have been limited with the cancellation of Roe Roe v. Wade, of course, but also the steps before that included, so in, in, in this sort of incremental process towards the overturning of Roe v. Wade, In many states, it was no abortions once trisomy 21 has been identified. So that came before that. Um, So given the choice, in at least two countries, Denmark and Iceland, women choose not to have babies with with Down syndrome. And I don't know how to, I, I, I don't, there isn't a resolution to this as a question, but part of the underlying framework of the discussion that we have in society and that we need to have is about the visibility and value of individuals that historically have been demonised or deemed unworthy of, of existence or reproductive reproductive rights. Uh, in order that we, as a society, decide whether or not that is the right way, the right thing to do.
0: I mean, is there maybe? something here about technology evolves at a pace, which gives us new ways to dehumanize people. And that changes faster than society and culture changes so that we can find new ways to humanize, include and facilitate the happy and dignified lives of people that we want dehumanized.
1: Yes. And, I, and I'm <laughs> I, that, that's, you said it perfectly eloquently. I don't need to qualify that.
0: Um, I mean, I, I, I want to um, move on to, I guess, you know, if, if we think about race, the social construction as being the interaction of cultural, political, economic priorities with what you can see, these inherited characteristics, which are relatively arbitrary in terms of how we chose them, hair, eyes, skin. um, In 200 years' time, um, accounting for the kinds of demographic changes here in the global north, but also historic uh, movements of people across borders. How, how might you think that the language of race could change?
1: <laughs> it's a question. It's a great question. It's one that I ask my students. So I frame it in a slightly different way, which is to say that, um, is there an alternative version of history where instead of discovering and measuring physical characteristics like skin color or you know skull size or shape, imagine that in the 16th century we discovered genetics. And before colonial expansion, we had a really robust understanding of biological diversity by the true metric of human sim- similarity and difference, which is in our DNA. How would society look today? <laughs> 3,000 words on my desk on Monday, please. Uh,
0: Have you heard about the disappearing donkey? No. No. Oh, you've never heard of the disappearing donkey? No. Okay, um, so this was a 1976 household survey uh, conducted by the Brazilian Institute of Geography and Statistics. And what they did was they invited every household it sent the survey to to describe their own skin color. So rather than ticking a box which said white or mixed or black, they invited people to self-identify. So you, they ended up with hundreds of words, phrases, ways of identifying yourself, which included, my Portuguese pronunciation is horrible, by the way, tostada, which means toasted. Um, cardao, which is a flower, and it's like a blue violet color that you find on thistles. So somebody is going, well, my skin's kind of this blue violet color. And uh, burro, quando... Fogue, I believe, um, which means the disappearing donkey, which is a humorous way of going, I'm this kind of tan color which melts into nothing. I'm a disappearing donkey. And I just thought that this was such a wonderful example of when you invite people to describe themselves, and of course, many people did just describe themselves as black or mestizo or white, or Galician. Um, lots of people did opt for that. But when you had this expansion of going, tell me what you think about your own skin color. There was almost infinite variety.
1: Yeah, that's great. I need to adopt that. It, the, the self-identification, and weirdly, many of the studies show that the self-identification of race race or ethnicity tally quite well with the clustering, with the genetic clustering. And racists often use, our scientific, pseudo-scientific racists often say, yes, but you say race is a social construct, but look, everyone from Africa describes themselves as black. Um, and it, it, it's a superficial, it, it's a sort of meaningless superficial analysis because what it, sh- it doesn't extract the social history of these terms, which are culturally normalised. When talking about race, I think it's a really interesting conversation about the language itself. So, and 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 the recognition that it changes over time. Of course, you know, I grew up being called half caste. I didn't really think much about it it's a, it's not a great phrase really is it and it's yeah, pretty it much the kind
0: economy of is half formed it's like yeah, half right. done yeah yeah
1: yeah 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 i'm not half of anything thanks mate <laughs> um and and that's that's turned into biracial or mixed heritage and i i don't i sort of you know we talked about taxonomy and classification i kind of don't care um but um the the, the 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 way those classifications change over time when how to are you with the Racist came out and i was doing a lot of talks I remember a particular occasion, two talks on consecutive nights where uh, a young black woman on the first night said, I want to reclaim the word black and I want to be a powerful black woman because of the cult- cultural history of being identified as black. I recognize the things you're saying as being, this is the social history of this word, um, but that's what, I, that, that's what I want. On the next night, a young black woman said, why do people call us black? I'm not black. My skin color isn't black. It's universally associated with negative characteristics. I mean and I sort of come out of that going okay, right, now I don't know what to say, but that's okay because you change with time and you contextualize those things. We laugh at our parents or p- parents in society who can't haven't quite managed to adapt to the way to, to the way Younger people talk today. Um, I'm, I'm including you in that category, but not, <laughs> but not me. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes we, we pillory them. And with social media, we, we're, we can be extremely mean about those, those, those infractions. Sometimes it's fair. Sometimes it's not fair. Um, but the recognition that culture changes and, and words change, and they're never fixed in time, and they're very personal, is part of the social construction of race and understanding the social... Economic, historical, ancestral, familial—all of those, those those words for the social construction of race. Another error that I think anti-racists make sometimes is to say that race doesn't exist because it clearly does exist, right? No, money
0: it, doesn't exist either.
1: Exactly, and time is a social construct. Wait, what? Ty- time. Time is, you know, I was fifteen minutes late for this interview. But that's only because we decided what time it was going to so be.
0: Then why are scientists studying it all the time?
1: <laughs> time? Ugh. But the year isn't even a fixed thing. I mean, we have leap years because the orbit of the Earth, the history of time is super fascinating because, that you know, we base it on the orbit of the Earth around the sun with the assumption that that is fixed. Back when they were inventing clocks, they tried water clocks. Oh, yeah, I went to an
0: exhibition about the water clocks. So it was like a
1: drip-drip. Yeah, yeah. They're not reliable enough. Candles was another attempt. Sundials, absolutely hopeless because the orbit is not, it's it's not circular, it's elliptical, and it changes through time. So a 24-hour day is the same throughout the course of the year because that's what we decide is the length of a day. But But a day in February is about 15 minutes shorter than a day in September,
0: See, this is why they used to hang scientists as witches. <laughs> no more for bringing it back.
1: It's even better story than that. I'll do it quickly because it's not the basis of our conversation today. But um, we used to use the the Julian calendar. Um, so before the Julian calendar was formalized, and I think this the year seven, um, it was the, the year was basically 200 and, 270 odd days, and they just add a few in uh, or take a few away so that the solstice aligned. With, so, so that the season's aligned with, with when someone's in the eyes in the sky. And then that didn't really work because they were just making it up. So Julian comes along and recognizes that the the orbit around the Earth is 365 and a quarter days. Yes? Mm-hmm. Which means that you have to have a leap year mm-hmm. to account for it. But it's not. It's 365.244 something, something, something. So it's slightly less than a quarter. This was recognized in the 16th century by Pope Gregory, I, I don't know whether it was him who recognised it, but we call it the Gregorian. <laughs> he was like,
0: "Wait a minute!" <laughs> he, he's
1: super nerdy with his tables. So by the it's just th- like you know, um,
0: you know, your Your Holiness, there there are heretics at the door. He's like, "Wait hold a minute! Wait a minute!" A minute.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know whether it was him precisely, but anyway, the point was that the, the in the years between the, Jul- the foundation of the Julian calendar and the October, I think it's fifteen eighty nine. Someone will write in and correct. Um, there was ten days. There were ten days out. So, with a papal decree that only popes can do, the day after the fourth of October was the fifteenth of October. They just those days do not exist, <laughs> and th- and that's the calendar that we use. So time is just. It's a social construct. I mean, I did
0: always like that. Um, revolutionary France tried to implement their own calendar.
1: You know, pi is the ratio between the, cir- the, the, the circumference of a circle and its. I remember that one. Okay. So it's 3.14, blah, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. Um, one of the states, and I forget which one, proposed legislation that just to make things easier, they just make it 22 over 7, which is which is not pi. <laughs> so, so it means that all circles are just, are just different shapes. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's just another great example of people going, yeah, reality is quite complicated and requires, I need to concentrate on this. Fuck it.
0: I want to do something
1: else. (laughs) I'm just going to make it a different number.
0: I mean, returning to the Michael K. Williams thing for a second, Mm. um, because when I came across this video of his very emotional um, reaction to his ancestry data, I was reading at the same time a paper by a medical anthropologist which talked about the particular way in which DNA has a cultural power within the African American community. And she argues two things is that one, you have the trauma of slavery, the collective intergenerational trauma of slavery. And then the second thing is, you know, how do I as a layperson, encounter DNA? It's mostly through watching true crime procedurals in which DNA is almost like a revelation from the heavens, like the voice from the burning bush, like it was him who did it. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the role that DNA has played in the criminal justice system, both in convicting and exonerating. And you think about how racism pulls African American people into the criminal justice system. DNA has, um, you know, this, this, Obscene power and status. And then that is then superimposed on questions of identity and belonging. Um, in your own work, have you encountered fetishization of, of DNA? Um, and, and how did you encounter it, if so?
1: Well, all the time is, is, the, is the simple answer because it's the same model again. It's a new, you know, we've only had DNA was first described in the late 19th century. But it, wasn't really, it didn't really become part of the biological framework uh, that we now recognize until the middle of the 20th century. And then the work of Crick and Watson and Rosalind Franklin in 1953, one of the great discoveries of, of, of in the history of science. The
0: only trio to ever better than was the sugar babes, I believe.
1: Uh, yeah, she, I don't know enough about the sugar babes to answer that. Watson is a monster. He's a horrible man, a deeply misogynistic racist, and he's very near the end of his life um, and maintains uh, a deep racism. Um, See, I don't
0: think that Heidi was a horrible racist, but I could be wrong.
1: Yeah, never meet heroes. God, <laughs> um, I don't, so I don't know who got, was in The Sugar Babes, to be
0: honest. <laughs> you're, you're like, I'm just going to laugh. Um, so Crick, wants Watson, and uh, Okay, Franklin.
1: so as soon as we've got the the, the molecule... Of inheritance, that's why it's such a big deal. Fifty three, because all of a sudden we've got you know we've got natural selection is 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 worked out in eighteen fifty nine. We've got um, understanding evolution and the basics of biology emerging in the beginning of the twentieth century in, in, in the years up to fifty three, and then all of a sudden with the double helix, we've got. The actual way in which information is passed from generation to generation and not just in us but in every living thing that has ever existed for the last 3.9 billion years. Pretty cool, right? But as soon as that happens, you see the same thing again. You see the same thing we see over and over again, which is the adoption of, of this thing as the answer. It's now We now have the biological mechanism, which means that you know, if the eugenicists got hold of this a few years earlier, that would have been the thing they focused on. In fact, what the American eugenicists, not so much in the UK or, or in Germany, what the American eugenicists focused on was Mendelian inheritance. So the pea plants done by Gregor Mendel, so which set up the rules. He was
0: the gardening monk.
1: Exactly. Um, Moravian friar. August, I, I only learned that in the last book. There's a difference <laughs> between a friar and a monk. And, and for the last 30 years, I've been describing him as a monk. He was a friar.
0: Friars have... Long poles, and they fight with Robin Hood.
1: Tuck. Yeah, they're wandering. I think is what part oh, okay. of it. They're, right. they're not associated with a monastery. People will write in and correct me on that. <laughs> um, but he came around his rules, the eye color rules. They come around at exactly the right time for the eugenicists as well. They're not wrong. They are the basis of, of of genetic inheritance. But it was they were immediately leapt upon by the American eugenicists saying, well, now we've got a mechanism. We've got genes. We don't know what the genes are made of. That comes in 53. But we've got genes which explains eye color, hair color, seafaringness, sex worker status, you know, all sorts of disabilities and abilities. Um, And and so you immediately see in 1900, the fetishization of this new part of of genetics. Um, The legacy of that, is really profound. Uh, just, I know we're talking about DNA, and we'll come back to that, I'm sure. With recent studies, and these are things only done in the last couple of years, have indicated, they suggest that if we teach genetics using Mendel first, so you start, probably like you did, I'm mm-hmm. guessing, certainly what I uh, like I did, um, then the people who come out of uh, that curriculum end up with a far more... Um, Racially essentialist view of humans than if you start with complexity. So, in America, they've done a few small studies. We haven't done them here, but this is a big part of my work at the moment, where you take one cohort of students and you teach them Mendel and genetics. You take another cohort of students and you teach them complexity and human variation and the rest of genetics, including Mendel. So you just do it in different direct, different order. They have the same curriculum but in a different order. Group one who get taught Mendel, end up basically more racist than Group 2.
0: Starting with complexity is something which I find really interesting. And I wonder if there's any overlap between that and your work as part of uh, the president of Humanists UK. Um, one of the things that I've been kind of interested in is the way in which humanism and atheism has changed over the last few decades. Um, going from something which I thought was profoundly intellectually curious and I was really drawn to, to something which had its own rigidity and drive for certainty you mean the atheist
1: community and sort of skeptics community oh
0: yeah i mean you know Mm. i remember when i first read the god delusion and i was 17 and i was like everyone who's ever had a faith is stupid and now i'm 30 and i think very differently about these things and i think about um the need for faith i think about the uh, experience of community i think about politics and faith very different. Do you sometimes encounter, even amongst people who have a commitment to reason and to science, that there are these kind of uh, unshakable, rigid, you know, an iron grip on certainty and what they think they know that you find difficult to
1: deal with? Well, yes, I do think that. And I think that they tend to come from the, not necessarily the scientific world, but they come with a a scientific and and rational bent in general. but I often find that, and this is again something that has really, I, I've sort of really begun to understand as I've got older. Because I think, you know, 20 something year old men who are, who are not religious, and it is mostly men, um, and they read a bit of Dawkins and go, you know, I've, I'm, I can I get on board with this. This is a powerful argument, and it reinforces all of my cultural baggages and stereotypes about how ridiculous religions are. And I've definitely been part of that in the past because religions are quite silly in in in, in so many ways. Um, but in saying that, you're also denying the importance, the cultural and social importance, and historical um, importance, which is centuries deep. And we don't, ju- we aren't purely rational beasts at all. I also think that when that new atheist movement emerged in the sort of early two thousands. It was deeply unscholarly. I mean, there's a whole huge leviathan body of work trying to understand religion, theology, Christianity. There's probably been more academically written about the history of Christianity than most subjects, I guess. And people like Dawkins said theology is a stupid subject. It's ridiculous. I'm not even going to entertain the notion that this is a real academic Field, which is an absurd thing to say. You don't have to be a Christian to be a theologian. Context of that, though, almost all theologi- theologians are Christians. So mm. that, that is a problem. That's an academic problem. They, my friend Francesca Stavropoulou is one of the only um, biblical scholars who who is vocally not a Christian. Not like, I'm sure that's. I'm sure there are many of them, but but I I, I love her and her work f- for that reason, but. You know, Dawkins is a figurehead in that movement. That book is fucking terrible. <laughs> He's written some of the most important books in biology in history. The Selfish Gene, um, The Extended Phenotype, and The Blind Watchmaker are foundational. Um, but his knowledge of the- theology and Christianity is sort of year 12.
0: I mean, wh- why do you think so many of the new atheist movement? seem to go all in on Islamophobia. I mean, Richard Dawkins is someone who will say, you know, I can recognize the beauty of even song. You know, the church bells, wonderful, but the call to prayer, horrible, noisy, disgusting. And somebody who um, defines themselves by skepticism mm. and interrogation from the basis of skeptical seems so incurious about how he makes his own cultural value judgments. And that's something which is, you know, shared by Sam Harris, Bill Maher. like, why are there so many of them?
1: Um, I think it was an interesting time. So it was just, it was post 9-11. So there was a lot of um, sort of cultural antipathy that was directed towards um, Muslims. Uh, I also think it was a time when creationism was a big conversation, mm. and in th- in this country, it's it's largely gone away. So there's a lot. Of my, my entry into becoming a media person was via creationism because there was a time when, in the early days of the internet, when this was the hot button topic, and you know the the I was one of the first writers on comment is free. Um, the, that, which is the Guardian's blog, which... Would
0: it have been Seamus Milne who edited you at that time? No,
1: it was um, Georgina Henry, mm. um, who who died a few years ago. And the pitching process... So, so uh, often students ask me, how did you get into, into to being a writer or being in the media? The pitching process was me emailing her and saying, can I write something on this? And her saying, yes. <laughs> and that was it, because the competition was... It was a completely different world back then. So in those early days... I haven't read them in years, and I, if I think if I did read them now, I think I'd slightly cringe. Um, I don't think they're wrong. But
0: Never read your old work no, is the no. ironclad law which I live by.
1: But but you know, a slightly sneery tone. Mm-hmm. It's easy to mock things that have little value, um, and mocking creationism, biblical creationism, was an easy thing to do. So I think at that time, the the cultural milieu was such that people like me coming from a scientific evolutionary genetics background, suddenly had this massive, easy target that we could just fling stuff at and, and become successful writers now. I'm, I write for The Guardian now, <laughs> age, age 25, um, which which was very exciting. And then, it, you know, and it's formalized in Dawkins' book, which which I just don't think is very good at all. And I recognise, I began to recognize that a p- problem with this conversation is that he. All had been written al- already in the 20th century by people who had a, who had more interest in in the scholarship. So, um, you know, people like Bertrand Russell and and A.J. Eyre and, and and some of the foundational, you know, philosophers of of humanism. Well, I
0: always think about Big Daddy Carl, You know, he so he says religion religion is the opiate of the people. That's the bit everyone quotes, and they forget which. Co- Oh, Ma,
1: I I thought you meant Jung.
0: No, no, no. (laughs) Oh my God. That's the psychologist's son right there. I mean, I always go back to Big Teddy Carl, right? Religion is the opiate of the masses. Everyone quotes that. And what they forget is that he followed up with, it is the heart in a heartless world, which is
1: extraordinarily empathetic. Sure. Well, I, I don't know whether it's, I come from a Catholic family and we have actually stopped going to church recently um because the priests that, that I was raised with died um but it was it was just a simple recognition of things that it, it, I think it's a good example of how different the public discourse from public behavior mm. actually is because the discourse was this is in, you know this, these are insane people why would you do this transubstantiation is a a mad thing to think is possibly real my my granny who's still alive and she used to be a three times a week Catholic. And we would go at Christmas and Easter and significant uh, events. She didn't believe transubstantiation was real. And she was perfectly okay with, with, um, with contraception. Um, as I think many Catholics are in the real world.
0: I had a friend who wanted to be a nun until she discovered sex and
1: drugs. <laughs> <laughs> I pr- I'm pretty sure... She wasn't unique in that revelation. <laughs> um, she then
0: um, switched. She was like, okay, maybe I can't be a nun, but I could be an actress who only plays the Virgin Mary and Sandy from Greece before she goes bad.
1: God, we had a conversation about Greece yesterday with my daughter. That is not an un- unproblematic film no, these days. No, it's
0: change for a man's love.
1: And um, did she put up a fight? We, you know, how many times of adults our age and older, much older <laughs> than you karaoke that in, I mean, in like, our 20s um, going hold on a minute that's not a good li- that's not a nice thing line is it
0: baby it's cold outside it's all about wearing down someone's no say what's in this drink
1: Oof. yeah
0: i think yeah. back to church <laughs> for both of us i believe and for this conversation <laughs> so there's a gap between how people live and their ability to take on complexity and contradiction Mm. and where the discourse is at, you were saying.
1: Yeah, yeah, so just, it's interesting because I've never had this conversation about the history of that era and the people who emerged out of it and the toxicity of the culture that subsequently happened. And that's that's interesting and I think we're only beginning to see that play out um, in the last couple of years.
0: I mean maybe this could be a sort of a place to wrap up and this might be a weird final question there's an interesting tension here between everything you're telling me which is you don't want science to be placed on this pedestal because when it is it's used to justify horrific crimes against humanity whether that's at the level of eugenics and racism or whether it's at the level of abuse of power and sexual assault and at the same time you're Presenting yourself in uh, mainstream media as a science communicator, and there is an associated status and authority that comes with that. I mean, how do you balance these two things?
1: Well, I think that people, I think that that there is an assumption about what science is, which is culturally reinforced, that it is this truth seeking, um, uh, unerring device, that we make continuous progress towards greater truths. And I think there's, there is a sort of foundational aspect to to science, which is which which is it is it's not like history in the same in the sense that it's just one thing after another, as the cliche goes. Things do progress in in science. We build on the knowledge of our of our forebears, not not always hundred percent successfully. But I think one of the things I, I've I've sort of evolved into being a science historian. Again, I'm, you know, I'm reluctant to say that. Because that is an academic field in itself, and I'm not trained in that discipline. Um, and I think scientists often make very bad historians for the reason is for the reason being that they tend not to treat the evidence of history with the same scrutiny that they treat the evidence that they are researching in their science. And the move in academic history over the last, I don't know, 40 years away from the Whiggish view, away from the great man theory has not happened in science. So we can still draw a perfect line from, I don't know, Aristotle to Stephen Hawking. And it's with on the way with Newton's and Faraday's and Darwin's, and occasionally a woman, but mostly it's a very direct line. And scientists have to be better at understanding the social context of of, of their work. I which which is basically what I do. There are There are caveats within that as well. So when I say things like all science is political, which feels like a very uncontroversial thing for me to say, the pushback sometimes is immense and angry. It's not, the degrees of anger vary between fields. So it's easy for me to say the emergence of biology and the emergence of genetics come out of the social uh, and political ideologies of European expansion and eugenics, right? Those are factual things. I do get pushback from people, from geneticists, against that, saying that's, that's ridiculous. The legacies of those, the ideologies are still within our work today. Not because science is a special case, but because science is part of society. Sometimes I get physicists saying, if I'm looking at the planets, if I'm looking at the transit of some tiny planet in a different galaxy um, and collecting data on that, how is that political? And I think they have a point, which is it's not the same as the scientific framework for the Holocaust. But it does deny it does deny that the reason that this guy is looking that, uh, looking at that the, the transit of a planet in a different galaxy has a social, historical, financial, economic uh, ancestry to it that he doesn't have a right to do that. Someone made the decision that that guy could do that because that is part of society as well, and our society is structurally biased.
0: I mean, you said earlier that you're not really a genetic determinist. Are you a bit more of an economic determinist?
1: I don't know anything about economics. <laughs> it's way too complicated. Yeah, I mean, for like me. most
0: economic determinists, you <laughs> know nothing about economics. <laughs> well, but- the, dis-
1: the dismal science they call it. It's a weird thing being a geneticist at this point in history because I spend almost all of my time talking about the, the, that genetics is less important than you think. Um. And it's not that it's not important. I'm not a blank slatist. That's a ridiculous position to take, an anti-scientific position to take. I'm. A, it's it's complex, and I know that's not good enough for people who want answers. This evening, we're publishing a paper um, about the changing public perception of genetics during the COVID era, because it's a question that's been really important to to, to science communicators and geneticists more broadly. Science was. Never ha- never has had bigger exposure than during the COVID period. There was, you know, there was a there was a point in, I don't know, March or April 2020, where everyone was talking about exponential growth and R numbers, and then then it became conversations about the spike proteins and and uh, um, uh, and, and then the the vaccine development and all those sorts of things. And so th- these are all part of my, you know general everyday conversations, and then all of a sudden that you've got the Prime Minister standing in front of a graph talking about exponential growth and it's all over the press. And that, you know, A lot of people were like, a bit sneery about that, ah, you know, the press has discovered exponential growth. Sure, I'm, I'm, I'm not like that. It's, it's, science is difficult and, and has expertise in it. We, it's not something you can dip in and out of, but we wanted to ask the question, did the public perception of genetics change as a result of this exposure? And what we found is, I think, broadly positive, which is that um, people seem to think that coverage was good, saw genetics in a positive light before, and that positive light was enhanced as a result of COVID. Um, Was that the
0: same in America?
1: This is a British survey. Um, So we don't know the answer to that question yet. Uh, And and that's an important one. We also saw, though, uh, uh, that the polls of support or antipathy towards science were increasingly polarized. So the people who had, were most suspicious of science came out more suspicious. I think the positive thing, I'm trying to work out how to talk about this because mm. the paper's not actually out until seven o'clock this evening. <laughs> um, and hopefully, you know, we'll be talking about it in the press. But I, I think there's a disconnect between um, what people generally think, which is pretty trusting. Pe- people generally trust science. I don't necessarily think that we we talk enough about the probabilistic nature of science, um, that that's the, the conditional nature of the results, and that people looking to science for truth and not understanding what science is. I think a good thing about the pandemic was we saw it live as it was happening. We're working this shit out as we're going along. Um, but what I do think we see as well is that polarization, which has a lot to do with social media, is that, that you have the fringe suspicious with a louder voice than at any point in history, and I none of us know how to deal with that.
0: I think we can end it there, Dr. Adam Rutherford. Thank you so much for joining us thank you today.
1: Gosh. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarro Media from just £1 a month. A regular donation helps us to plan our future and be even more ambitious with our coverage of news, politics, culture and the really big ideas that you'll always find on our podcasts. So please consider joining us and become a regular supporter from just £1 a month by heading to navaramediacom forward slash
0: support.